Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck, and I am here on this beautiful Martin Luther King Day with Aaron Thorpe of Trillbillies at a Time of Monsters. Uh, you probably know him already. He's been on before. And Andre Demise, contributing editor of Acclaims Magazine and host of the Drop Squad for the Resistance Noir Podcast Network. How are you guys doing today? Chilling. Oh, good, good. Yeah. Chilling on this beautiful chill, chill. sacred day. Well, ch- sacred for you. We don't get Martin Luther King Day off in Canada. So it's one of those holidays oh, shit, where, yeah. like, yeah, if you're if you're black and you say to your boss, hey, listen, I'm taking Martin Luther King Day off, you might get the day off or you might not. Who knows, depending on how racist your boss is. But, yeah, yeah. you don't get the day off. I feel, I feel like that should just be, like, I mean, even though Martin Luther King, obviously, like, you know, American, but I feel like even if you're just in North America as a black person, like, you should just, you know, enjoy, like, that day. Like, all white people should Venmo you money or Cash App you money or something like that. <laughs> oh, oh, man, gosh. Don't don't get, like, the, uh, the Cash App Twitter. You know, for every, for every emotional injury you inflict by disagreeing with their opinions, you have to cash app them $500. Don't be saying that shit, bro. I should <laughs> drop the Venmo link. energy into this podcast. <laughs> I respect the hustle. You know, I, would, reparation, I would not man. fault you for doing that, Aaron. Petty I think reparation. that is a fine thing to do. Well, seeing as, yeah, seeing as how your medical bills are like, bro, you're going to have to like work, you know, three lifetimes to cover the medical bills. So... Yeah, I think uh, we'll have to excuse it in your case. Yeah, I didn't even I haven't even fucking hand started handling that shit yet, man. But people have been passing yeah. around some video that apparently I can like, you know, get my uh my bill lowered. So I'm gonna look into that. But yeah. Yep, yeah, it's gonna be for the rest of my life. It's fine. Jesus Christ. Well, um I don't know why you're so concerned because our friend, our the great man, Barack Obama, <laughs> passed a great Great piece of healthcare legislation that made all of your uh, medical debt problems go away. No, exactly. Of course, of course, it improved access, right, uh, to healthcare. Yeah. And um, yeah, we live in a we live in a system with universal single payer healthcare now. That is that is what Obama did for us. Oh boy! So if you guys haven't figured it out by now, we are talking about da 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 da. Our former president, Barack Obama, and his book, A Promised Land, which is very fitting for Martin Luther King Day because, as he reminds us several times in the book, he finished the work that Dr. King started. Yes. Jesus yes, Christ. Yes, he did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and he actually, I think, sort of paved the way to make it safe for people to say, you know, we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. And for him, for that, I'll never forgive him. You know, there's a, straight, there's a straight line you can draw between Barack Obama's presidency and a bunch of medical students going out to a plantation where, like, you know, Negro bones are still buried and taking, like, a really glam photo and saying we are our ancestors while the streams in front of, like, the slave quarters shack. You know, that's that was something that was something great that he gifted us. You know, those those uh, those those photos you see on Twitter and Instagram every so often that, you know, just make me like grind my teeth into dust. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> oh, man. I've seen people do shit like that at, like, the Holocaust Memorial. Jesus, man. I mean, it's hey, people no do that at Holocaust like... Memorials for real? I've seen, I've seen people – well, they don't say that phrase, but they'll, like, take these, like, really cute selfies by, like, the, the Holocaust Memorial, like, hashtag sad, like, thinking oh, about Oh, my the gosh. Holocaust. What the fuck? For the clout, and... man. 
Yeah. It, it's also like, um, I don't know, funeral selfies kind of sees in the same genre. although like some of the funeral selfies are fire i don't know if you've seen that one where the dude like takes a a photo like in front of the church and he's like yeah i had to come out to my haters funeral just to make sure the n word dead which was (laughs) (laughs) that was that was legendary i actually did appreciate that one a lot yeah so yeah in regards to obama and healthcare, like oh sorry go, go ahead aaron no, I just want to add, like, you know, like on MLK Day, like everybody wants to exploit his legacy. You know, uh, even people that would have like, you know, despised him back in the day had they been alive. And it feels no less insulting when Obama does it. You know, um, no. it, it's very schizophrenic book. Like, yeah. it's a very schizophrenic book. I'll, I'll tell you, yeah, if, let's if get Barack Obama that. had been alive, if Barack Obama had been alive when MLK was still around, like he would have he would have totally sneaked this him. Just like he sneaked this in every other <laughs> black person that he comes into contact with in this book outside of his own family but yeah he would have been throwing thoughts <laughs> at mlk he, he <laughs> everyone it's so it's oh so my gosh. great like he's such a bitch like Bro. he hates hillary so much he's so good <laughs> it's just like saying stuff where like he's being nice but you know that he's actually not does is yeah. there like a black word for that sneak mm. distance Sneak this. Yeah, I just said it. Sneak this, or throwing, throwing shade or whatever. But uh, there's like, um, if if you uh, if you read through like if you read the book from the lens of what does he think about black people, which is, I mean, immediately how I had to read the book. I was like, man, he really does not like black folks at all. So the idea that uh, you know uh, he's like the completion to MLK's legacy, he probably would have told MLK, well. You know what? Uh, I liked the marches. Uh, I like the speeches, but I think that there was something lacking in terms of uh, in terms of policy and substance. You know, like it would have been it would have been on some like respectability bullshit, which is how he's been throughout this entire book. And and the thing is, he doesn't actually talk about black people all that much because this is supposed to be like the first and was it like three volumes or something like that. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. I think he's going to address like race matters in probably the next volume, but. Uh, for the for the time being like whatever whatever like small like snippets that you see in this book that have anything to do with uh black politics uh black revolutionary uh or radical tradition or anything like that it's all it's all throwing shade yeah i mean he he like when he talks about jeremiah right i know we'll get into it more but he does mention jeremiah right you know who um who came out with that 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 quote that said something like um the chickens came home to roost or something like talking about 9-11 i mean there were a bunch of like quotes that got pulled out like when obama was running that um where he pretty much had to discredit jeremiah right and it's like then when he later he talks about like larry summers or like tim geithner like these wall street ghouls who he brought on to like you know his economic like you know policy like whatever it's like he just forgives those people very easily even though they had a direct role in like the economic crisis that happened, right? Oh, he loves them. Yeah, he loves them, and he apologizes for them c- consistently. But Jeremiah Wright is like, nah, this is a little bit too much. The fact that he said that this country could never get past like racism is a little bit too much for Obama, apparently. Well, let's let's get into this because um, I got I got some questions on the sheet for you guys. I think they're gonna be a lot of fun. So we're kind of answering the first one already. Um, general impressions of the book. How did it make you feel? Was there anything you liked about it? Do you believe the things he says? Is he a cold-blooded sociopath or just a guy who really wants Americans to come together? Go ahead, Andre. 
<laughs> Go I don't on. know. I, I don't know. I don't know where you really want me to start on that because I think y'all might already know how I feel about Barack Obama. But uh, I, I actually tried to give the book the benefit of the doubt. How it made me feel was um, angry. Like I did a tweet thread a little while back, and the, the, the problem is I, I, I generally will like nuke my tweets every few months just to like keep myself humble. Uh, but I was I was uh, tweeting about like what I was reading from the book. I think everyone picked up on some of the excerpts from the early chapters where he was talking about, you know, himself at university and and people really picked up on like, uh, you know, he would like read. I forget what the order of operations was, but I think he said like, you know, marks for like the long legged socialists and like uh, who, who else did he say? I think he said like Hegel for like the, the ethereal uh, bisexual, the ethereal bisexuals or some shit like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> People picked up on that because that was just really fucking weird. But, uh, you know, I, I wonder how deep into the book everyone got because I didn't see any experts excerpts from the later chapters. I definitely did. Um, his his takes on foreign policy are just fucking atrocious. And I think yeah. uh, a lot of that a lot of that has to do with um, the fact that his mother was so worldly and that he did a lot of traveling when he was young. Um, you know, and the, the fact that they lived in Indi- Indonesia for a little while and. I know that, you know, people have this general impression of Americans that Americans are not worldly and that they don't travel, uh, don't really know much about global affairs. Now, I don't know how true that is or isn't, but it definitely feels like he holds that point of view. So anytime that he's talking about foreign policy, he'll just get things so wrong. And, you know, I I get that you're the former president of the United States and you've got a a line to carry uh, for American imperialism, but people aren't stupid, you know, and and the the. the feeling that I got from reading this book is somebody who's talking to me like I'm a complete nincompoop and I've never read a book in my life. I, I really didn't appreciate that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, like I said earlier, the book was just incredibly schizophrenic, right? Because it was almost like reading a diary of like a serial killer. Right. <laughs> like he, he tries to like <laughs> rationalize like the sickest shit in the world. Like, I mean, I, can I just read that? There's just one quote where I literally had to write amazing next to it because it just, yes, it just like please. fucking blew my mind, yo. Um, so he's talking about, um, you know, picking Rahm Emanuel to be his chief of staff, right? Um, and mind you, he describes Rahm Emanuel as the mastermind of the 2006 Democratic wave that had taken back the House. Um, he also says he knew financial markets from a working stint on um, from a stint working on Wall Street. So it's like he acknowledges, like right off the bat like that or actually i should say doesn't acknowledge because how did Rahm emmanuel help take back the house in 2006 right by running a bunch of like blue dog democrats conservative democrats like that's what Rahm emmanuel is known for like you know being like that cudgel against the left and this quote just like blew my fucking mind right he says quote didn't he talking about um Rahm emmanuel didn't he represent the same old triangulating davos attending wall street coddling washington focused obsessively centrist version of the Democratic Party we had been running against. But then he says, in order to advance progressive policies like universal health care or immigration reform, it was not only possible, but necessary to avoid doctrinaire thinking, to place a premium on what worked and listen respectfully to what the other side had to say, end quote. So it's like his whole like sort of cabinet of rivals thing which is the larger indictment of liberals and their like, for some reason, like self-flagellation and obsession to be like cucked to the right. And the book is like all about that. It's all about him apologizing for why he had to drone certain countries, why he had to do this because he didn't want to be seen as soft by Republicans. And it's just like Andre said, it was infuriating to read. It was infuriating to read. 
Yeah, I think I came away with a similar impression of it. Surprise, surprise. Um, like, he kind of reminds you of Lena Dunham in a way, <laughs> because, you know, there's nothing you can say about Barack Obama that he hasn't already said about himself, probably yeah. in the last five minutes in this book. Okay, okay, guys. Like, he does it, <laughs> he does it over and over again. He does it with Reverend Wright. He does it with sending more troops to Afghanistan. He does it with, uh, you know, doing the bullshit Romney care healthcare plan instead of Medicare for all and uh, letting Joe Lieberman fucking nuke the public option. He's like, uh, look, uh, I know you think it sucks that I did this and I feel bad about it, but here's why I had to do it. Here's why I had no choice. I got to make sure I get my Obama impression in. Andre didn't want to, you just did one, Jamie. <laughs> that was a good one. Well, yeah, it's the... Right. What'd you say, Dre? I hear you. Let's, let's, let's hear yours. I'm gonna put you on the spot. Let's hear yours. Oh man, I, nah, I got. I'm gonna read a quote. I'm gonna read a quote then, real quick. Oh God, he here said, uh, <laughs> uh, talking about Biden. He had pronounced yeah. me articulate and bright and clean and a nice looking guy. <laughs> a phrase surely meant as a compliment, but interpreted by some as suggesting that such characteristics in a black man were noteworthy. Yeah. All you gotta do is just like break up your cadence and speak from the back of your throat. You got it. I mean, you just have to completely abandon any sense of like blackness. That's that's what you got. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know what's wild too? You know what's wild is that like he went from like the non black black guy like early on in the two thousand and eight primaries or you know, even like in like in late two thousand and seven when he announced that he was planning on running uh for the uh the Democratic presidential uh nomination. You know, he came across as somebody who was like kind of affable but not like black black. Uh, yeah. and, and then, and then, um, it wasn't until after he won North Carolina, cause a lot of people, I think, didn't believe that he was going to be able to beat Hillary Clinton. Like the Clinton machine was just too strong in North Carolina. And a lot of black people were mad at him for, uh, for running against Hillary Clinton in the first place. So like, Hey brother, wait your turn. Um, and then, so people were like talk, like making claims about his blackness and calling it inauthentic. And, well, they weren't calling it inauthentic. They were just, see, this is back in like 2008, right? So all of like the, the, the Tumblr talk hadn't quite slipped into the political lexicon yet it was just basically like yeah he's he's not real like he's not he's not he's not a real black dude and then uh after he wins north carolina that's all of a sudden when you see like the the like the malcolm x talk start slipping out he's like, hey, remember, that? remember that speech when he was talking about Hillary Clinton? he's like yeah uh don't let her try to hoodwink you right and then everyone's like oh my gosh wait a second he is black he knows about malcolm x like and i I think it was kind of a a breath of fresh air because um a lot of people i had seen like there was kind of like a like two opposite poles of politics for uh for black politicians in north america there was like the the harold washington uh and the um oh my gosh uh the marion barry like people there was there was black politicians that i think people saw as being a little bit like too much on the stereotypical black side and then there was also people like um what was that dude's name from new york was it uh was it um harold something light-skinned dude look mm. looked real anyway it's it's going to come back to me at some point like 35 minutes into the recording i'm going to shout it out and annoy the both of you but um you know there's there's also like the politicians that were like really like clean cut the ones that are like you know super presentable the ones that like you know wouldn't really harm a fly. Devel Patrick kind of uh, yeah. figures in or factors in as one of those kind of people. Um, back then, he was wasn't he the uh, the governor of Massachusetts? Massachusetts at yeah, the time. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, people saw Deval Patrick as that kind of dude. People saw Corey Booker at the time he was the mayor of New Jersey. They saw him as that dude. Um, And I think so, like, Barack Obama fell somewhere, like, uncanny in the spectrum. They didn't really quite know where to place him. So, defensively, they just put him on the Deval Patrick, Corey Booker side. And I think as the primary one time, people were just, like, ascribing more and more and more blackness to him. And I actually don't think that he had a hell of a lot to do with that. I think it was actually Michelle Obama that gave him mm-hmm. that credibility because Michelle Obama is just like, she is just a black woman. Like you, you like the, the way that she, she talks, you know, the things that she's concerned about, mm-hmm. like everything about her is just like, okay, yeah, this is, this is a damn sister. Like this is somebody that, you know, that, that, that looks like somebody from the family. Mm-hmm. I think, I think she gave him a lot of credibility um, that he wouldn't have had otherwise. Like if he had gone into that primary with a white wife, it wouldn't happen. Like he would have not won that nomination. Yeah. And the wild thing is that the credibility that she gave him, transferred over to Joe Biden. I think that Michelle uh, Obama, and I think uh, it was T from Champagne Sharks podcast that talked about this, but I think if it hadn't have been for Michelle Obama, you wouldn't have a president, Joe Biden. Mm. Oh, man. Yeah, power of transference. That's quite a lot um, for a woman who did not want her husband to get into politics <laughs> at all. Yo, yeah. she was the only sympathetic person. She was the only person I felt sympathetic to. And the whole time I'm reading it, I'm like, yo, you're such a fucking asshole, dude. Like, you're I literally know. dragging her along. And at one point, she's like, yo, this is what you want. This is what yeah. I never wanted. And then he just breezes over, like, her decision, suddenly her decision to be like, all right, I'm on board. And it's just like a, a quick paragraph where he just says, oh, yeah, well, I ended up talking to her. She was with it. No, he gaslights her <laughs> with a speech. Like, it must be so frustrating to be married to fucking Obama because whenever he wants to get his way, he just pulls out his, like, magical speech powers. Yeah. And it's like, fine, fine. Like, yeah. I actually wrote down this passage because uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like... When he, you know, he wants to run for president, his wife is mad. Like, she already didn't like it that he ran for Senate and kind of, um, you know, messed up the life of their family. But she put up with it because she loved him. And um, then on page 71, he's kind of wrestling with his own ambitions for a second. He's doing the Lena Dunham thing again. But, you know, in the shallowest possible way, you know, as as Lena Dunham would, Um He's saying, why would I put her through this? Was it just vanity or perhaps something darker, a raw hunger, a blind ambition wrapped in the gauzy language of service? And I underlined that part and I said, this, (laughs) or was I still trying to prove myself worthy to a father who had abandoned me, live up to my mother's starry-eyed expectations of her only son and resolve whatever self-doubt remained for being born a child of mixed race? It's like you have a hole to fill, Michelle had told me early in our marriage, after a stretch in which she'd watched me work myself to near exhaustion. That's why you can't slow down. So then he goes through it, and you're like, wow, is he actually wrestling with his own ambition, with his reasons why he wants to do this insane fucking thing? Um, he goes through, he uses um, Martin Luther King, actually. He, um, he helped him understand that his ambition is good, uh, actually, so long as his ambition is involves somehow making the world a better place. Um, But he's still a little bit worried um, about this thing that he wants to do. Not because he'd be heading an evil empire or managing an economy that runs on exploitive labor and extraction of resources from the global south. No, it's just that it's making his wife mad. And and it's 
it's also just like, yo, you know, there's that that meme or whatever where people are like, you know, instead of going to therapy, like men do this. It's like, bro, you're working out, <laughs> you're working out daddy, mommy identity issues, and you're foray into politics to, as some filler for this eternal void. And you know, it's but you're running to like become like the leader of like the strongest, most powerful like nation, the most evil nation on earth. Like, it's really sick. Men yeah. will literally run for president, win, and drone bomb <laughs> Pakistan instead of going to therapy. Exactly. It's so true. Oh, my God. Like, he could, like, you can kind of see the inner workings of how he rationalizes it to himself as well as everybody else in the book, right? Like, there's another part um, when Michelle asks him, they're, they're now in a meeting with a bunch of people, and she asks him again, why do you need yeah, to be Yeah, why does it have to be you? Exactly, yeah. And there are so many other Democrats that you say could run and win. And then he, you know, he does another fucking speech. He gets <laughs> yeah. his speech Obama on. And he says, um, he, he gives this like beautiful ode to the politics of elite representation. You know, he says that um, black kids will see themselves differently. Their horizons lifted, their possibilities expanded. And like their white friends are like starting to cry. And she's like, fine, just f- fucking, you're going to do it. Just fucking do it, whatever. But he doesn't mention anything material. Like, that's one thing I noted, right? Because, yeah, he talks about, like, the, the hope for black and brown and maladjusted kids that he would inspire and, like, a new kind of politics. But there's nothing material. And then, essentially, it's, like, his decision to run, he writes it as, like, this every man turned hero's journey, or like maybe this like partial accident or like congealing of events that, but it ultimately just reveals his own like megalomania, you know? Yeah. It's like, he says, if the quote, it's on page 78, he says, quote, if these beliefs um, in the America he idealized were made manifest, then my own life made sense. That's like some sociopathic shit, bro. Yeah. <laughs> like that's some sick ass shit, dude, you know? And again, Jamie, it's like, it made, like reading really also made me feel like if I had like, when I used to work before quarantine, right? And I'd be at the bar, you know, and it'd be like 12 a.m. And I know I got to wake up at like, you know, six o'clock in the morning to go to my like shitty diner job. But I'm like rationalizing while I'm sitting at the bar and getting progressively drunker. Like I'm, I'm rationalizing to myself, like, it's all right, yo, I'll leave at 1230. I'll leave at one o'clock. <laughs> and that's what the fucking book felt like, where it's like, yo, I don't even think you believe in the shit that you're writing right now, you know? Well, that's the mind fuck about it, because like some sometimes I can tell that he's just being cynical, and other times like he really seems like he believes the stuff that he's saying, and I I don't know where one begins and the other ends. Uh, this is it's just a schizophrenic book, man. Where do we want to start in unpacking this whole venture? Because I'm I'm happy to start up anywhere. There's a there's a couple of things that I really want to just like. To the man apart on, but what what like stood out to the both of you? Oh well, of the worst shit about this book. Well, on the topic that we've been discussing, um, he makes a point of talking about how he really inspired the help at the White House, right? <laughs> the um, mostly non-white, the cooks and the butlers um, who work at, domestically in the residence. Which it, it's funny because he says, you know oh, I couldn't help but notice, like, all the people who work for me are black, and it seems like a relic of a bygone era, as if, you know, that's not still the case, that most mm-hmm. domestic workers are not white. Uh, but he makes a point of talking about how they were just really, really happy to be serving him and his family um, at the White House. Like, 
he had to try really hard to get them to stop wearing tuxedos when they served him dinner every night. Like, how does that sit with you guys? I mean, it's like, I mean, I could, I could understand. I mean, there are moments again where it's like, I feel like there's this authenticity peeking through. And I, even though I do believe he's a sociopath, like I could understand how that would genuinely make him uncomfortable. But then like, he goes on and this is like, this is even before he like becomes president. Um, I think this is the inaug. I, mean, I think it's the inauguration. Like he's writing his inauguration speech, and he makes a point of quoting Martin Luther King, um, his March on Washington speech, where he says, "We cannot walk alone," and he references having met older black volunteers and um, black sick or disabled senior uh, supporters and black workers who had quote had quietly done what was necessary to feed their families and send their kids to school. But it's like you abandoned these folks once you got elected. With your, you know, corporate favored response to the economic crisis, which Andre, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't that like the greatest loss of like black wealth, like at the time in the country so far, like during the oh economic yeah, crisis? The, the evaporation of black wealth in the economic crisis was the single largest, like reduction of black wealth that had taken place. I don't remember if it was in comparison to, uh, you know, the Great Depression or if it was just period, but I do know that in the uh, in in the last hundred years there had been no larger destroyer of black wealth than the 2008 financial crisis. And what really pissed me off about that, that's when I was working in the financial industry, right? And nothing had actually happened yet in terms of uh, help for uh, regular people, which wasn't really forthcoming. But I do remember when I was working in the industry, you know, a lot of my colleagues were saying things like, yeah, you know, the reason that this happened in the first place is because um, affirmative action had forced the banks to make loans to people who didn't qualify for it. The thing is, it's one thing if it's just a regular person who's maybe watching like CNBC and getting misinformation, but these were people with like, you know, advanced degrees and shit, repeating and propagating this information, both inside the office and to their clients. And what they, they knew what the actual truth was. And what the truth was, was that, um, banks were deliberately offering uh, like high interest mortgages or mortgages that started off on a low teaser rate, but then blew up after like a year or possibly two years into a higher interest mortgage. So these were like subprime mortgages that were being offered to people that had regular ass credit. And they knew this information was still propagating it. And what I, what I didn't like about this book is that Obama didn't really push back against that at all. And I think part of the reason he doesn't is because what he does after uh, he assumes the, uh, the reign of president and introduces the stimulus package was that he gave all this money towards corporations and NGOs and didn't bail out homeowners, which was like this, I think should have been the single largest priority. He should have also made sure that these uh, bankers that were essentially flouting, if not completely breaking the law, would have gone to jail. Didn't want to do that either. You know, there were people that had Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac mortgages that he could have offered some amnesty on. Uh, offered either like a, a mortgage freeze or possibly exemption or relief of some kind. Didn't do that. Didn't bail out the uh, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, mortgage holders. So they ended up getting their houses foreclosed on, just like yeeted out of their fucking zangiefed out of their houses by parents <laughs> for owing that owing like a month or possibly two months worth of uh, worth of worth of mortgage. And then people were just like driving down blocks and snapping up these houses on the cheap. So to me, like the the destruction of black wealth talking point, I don't think quite fully captures like mm-hmm. how much, I don't know if you want to call it benign neglect or if it was malevolent neglect, like a purposeful, like, yeah, fuck y'all kind of neglect. But that's, that's actually one of the things that infuriated me about his residency. And it's what really like disillusioned me shortly after he took office. But he made the butlers so happy. 
<laughs> and my kid got to come to the White House and touch his hair. Like, that's oh, really God. important. Well, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Right. He, he, yeah, takes photo ops where kids are, uh, are allowed to touch his hair. Like, everything, man, everything about that. <laughs> Even though it was a black kid that was touching his hair, like, everything about that is terrible. Like, I remember that. You know, like, oh, my gosh, look at this. This is my president. I'm like, has this black child never touched a black man's hair before? Like, I, why is this picture important to you? It was very, like, voyeuristic, you know, or like exhibitionist. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, like, like who was that for? <laughs> And actually, yo, Dre, all that tip too, like if we're going to talk about it, like the financial crisis, I mean, there are like lines in this book, quotes in this book that would like haunt me, like, like haunt me for like a couple of days after at least. <laughs> like it was like the most, like the most quietly disturbing book that I've ever read. Yeah. There's this one point where like literally it blew my fucking mind, like almost through the book. He says when he's like t- talking about assembling his economic team, um, he says on page 211, this is insane. He says, quote, I loved the various up and comers who would advise me throughout the campaign and felt a kinship with left leaning economists and activists who saw the current crisis as the result of a bloated and out of control financial system in dire need of reform. But that's what he should have just called this fucking book. But but with the world economy in free fall, my number one task wasn't remaking the economic order. It was preventing further disaster. For this, I needed people who, by definition, might be tainted by the sins of the past. And he fucking hires Larry Summers and Tim Geithner. Larry <laughs> Summers and Tim Geithner. Who worked for fucking Kissinger. What the fuck? And he loves to compare himself to FDR, right? Every yes. fucking chance he gets. He's like, I want to do a new deal because I'm like FDR. But, but then he's like, Oh, um, but I couldn't do any of these transformative things because it was the financial crisis. Like, what the fuck do you think the New Deal was? Exactly. What do you think it was in response to, dude? But what he ends up doing instead is that he just gives power back to the people who created the crisis in the first place. Like, that's the thing that just blows my mind about his his economic response is that, like, you – I mean, it was because he's not a socialist, right? He's not a leftist, right? And it's like masquerading as pragmatism when it's really just like sociopathic as fuck, <laughs> right? Oh, 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 oh. You want to talk about sociopathic as fuck? Just a couple of pages later, <laughs> he, when he talks about, okay, so he's talking about uh, the need for, you know, showing up America's defense and then, you know, sort of like find, finding a way to put a kinder, gentler face on uh, U.S. Uh, foreign policy and the military, et cetera. So he, he's looking at his, uh, his sec def. So he says, it's fair to say that uh, President Bush's secretary of defense and I did not hang out in the same circles. Once you got beyond our common Kansas roots, i.e. Gates had been born and raised in Wichita, it was hard to imagine two individuals who had traveled such different roads to arrive at the same location. Gates was an Eagle Scout, a former Air Force intelligence officer, a Russia specialist, and a CIA recruit. Now, this is where it gets this is where it gets fucking hairy. <laughs> At the height of the Cold War, he served in the National Security Council under Nixon, Ford, and Carter, and in the CIA under Reagan before becoming the agency's director under George H. W. Bush. He'd previously been nominated by Reagan, but questions about his knowledge of the Iran Contra affair had led him to withdraw. I.e., he got caught up in the Iran Contra affair and he resigned before somebody tried to throw his ass in jail. Okay. <laughs> But then he says, with Bill Clinton's election, Gates left Washington, D.C., joined corporate boards and later served as president of Texas A&M University. So when Bill Clinton comes into office, think, he thinks to himself, oh, shit, I might like my time might be up right now. Time for me to, like, jump on the jump on the, the corporate bandwagon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. So he heads he heads out 
the revolving door, joins the corporate world, uh, heads up university, and then says a post he would hold until 2006 when George W. Bush asked him to replace Donald Rumsfeld at the Pentagon and salvage an Iraq war strategy that was then thoroughly in shambles. So it's like, so out of all the people that you could, I mean, granted, there are really no good choices when it comes to hiring a sec def, but you want to keep on the Secretary of Defense that headed up this CIA under Reagan that uh, was in the National Security Council under Nixon, Ford, and Carter, and was also implicated in the Iran-Contra affair. What, what, so what exactly about your presidency was, was so transformative? Like, what, what about it was a break with the past? What about it resembles an FDR in the slightest? And he never answers that in this book. He never, he never actually talks about the change he actually brings, oh, he which does. was a theme throughout his entire campaign. Well, he, 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 he talks he, about it. What I'm saying is, like, there's, there's no demonstration of substantial change. What what I mean when I say he does is that right under where he's talking about Gates, right, right under that part where he's talking about Gates, he says that there was a final reason I wanted Gates on my team, and that was to push against my own biases. The starry-eyed idealist who instinctively opposed <laughs> military action and believed that every problem on the international stage could be solved through high-minded dialogue had never been entirely accurate. Like, he keeps on the two most consequential issues. Right. Economic policy and foreign policy or war. He just wants to pick like have this bipartisan, like, you know, this cabinet of pragmatic bipartisanship. And it's like, dude, these motherfuckers are going to eat you alive because even against the implication that he has better instincts, it's like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. It, it was worse. It was worse than that. It was worse than that. He he has the nerve to refer to um, Dwight D. Eisenhower's uh, warning about the military and industrial complex. And what he says is that, you know, I, I had my, you know, um, I had my, uh, you know, uh, feelings about uh, the, the, the possibility of uh, pushing reform. But then he says, um, there was a high likelihood that pushing reform might be harder for a newly elected African-American president who'd never served in uniform, had opposed a mission that many had devoted their lives to achieving, wanted to rein in the military budget, da, 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 da. So what he's basically saying is, yeah, I wanted to do all these things, but being the black guy, I, I don't think it could have been me. <laughs> yeah. So what are, you, what are you teaching people? You're, you're basically saying that in order for you as a black person to actually act as the president of the United States, you have to do you have to jump through all of the hoops that white people set for you. So really, as a black person who is the president, you have no power whatsoever. You just have to go along with like whatever the fuck people expect of you. Never have an original idea of your own and act on it. So it's like this is full of these intentions. Like I wanted to do these things, but I'm sorry, my hands were tied because being a black president and and my like, I was just a nigga. I couldn't do nothing about it. My problem with it is too much that he says it. Well, it's not so much that he says it, it's that other people co-sign this shit. Because you, you hear people say that all the time. Why didn't he go for universal health care? Black president couldn't have done it. Why didn't he close Gitmo? Black president. Why didn't he bail out homeowners? Black president. So why, the why didn't fuck he jail did the bank? Black president. <laughs> exactly. What the fuck did you run for president for if a black president can't accomplish shit? That's what pisses me off so much about this story. <laughs> Actually, you know what? That's, that's a good point too, right? Like, um, it's the whole entire book is him just living up to a white ideal, right? Like, he's just, like, you were talking about earlier, Audrey, like, there's that weird, like, um, like stratum of, like, Deval Patrick and people like Cory Booker, but Obama was sort of in this little gray area, but then you find out, like, no, he's just, like, appealing 
to what he thinks white people or he what what he what he says in the book is like kind of the political establishment right and people who had been there for decades who he Harold expected. Ford Jr. I knew it was going to happen in the middle of nowhere Harold Ford Jr. I'm so sorry go ahead oh that's the guy you were talking about Harold Ford Jr. yeah 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 Harold Ford and they they uh they got him on this um messaging uh, he ran for I forget what seat it was but he was he was running for uh Congress and uh um his opponent released a commercial about him basically like talking about how much he was a party guy and uh one of the highlights in that commercial was some blonde white chick saying i had so much fun at the party last night call me harold and then she like makes a little like, oh, like yeah. little one hand signal to her head and it was like okay so we know exactly what y'all are trying to say you're trying to say that you know he's he's like the the black dude that's just like running through all the white women i i, I like it's not hard to see <laughs> that but the thing was he actually lost off the strength of that campaign he loves Go my Jane. partisanship like he gets into this funny little one-upmanship contest with John McCain during the campaign just to see to see who can be more bipartisan. And meanwhile, like we see the rise of the Tea Party and all these right-wing psychopaths who just like want to fucking lynch him on the White House lawn for being a Muslim. <laughs> and he's like, uh, the paper's gonna break. Yeah, yeah. Actually, yo, why don't we get I mean like Jamie like, show, but why don't we get going? to that next week? Like why, why don't we get into that too? Because I think that one of the most amazing things is like his sort of response to like um he's talking about John McCain and then later he talks about Sarah Palin. And like uh, he truly does believe that like John McCain's like a maverick. Like he truly is disappointed when John McCain, as he's running in the Republican primary, starts to like tack a little bit more to the right. And it's like the most infuriating thing like ever, especially when he talks about Sarah Palin. And mentions and mentions her appeal that there were white working class people who felt as if the liberal elite or you know that that elite establishment would look down on on them. And he says as well too. He says something like it's not un, un, entirely unjustified, but it's like even then he can't fully admit that even he himself remember that uh, clinging to their guns and Bibles quote that he gave. Yeah, even he himself fucking hates like people. He yeah. fucking hates people. Oh my God, man. Yeah, like, I don't know if it's he deals, people. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. The, the way he deals with racists in this book is very interesting, and I want to get into it because it seems like he's both way too nice to racist white people at the same time that he's incredibly condescending and he hates them. And I'm not just talking about Hillary Clinton. Like no. what he's he talks about. Um, it's, it's interesting, right? Because at the beginning, at the very beginning, he starts with this conviction that racism is not inevitable, which I actually agree with because I understand, you know, as a Marxist, that um, race and racism are fairly recent political constructions, which arose from a specific set of material conditions in history, right? Not just an ahistorical fact of humanity, which is important to us as communists because a lot, a lot of the white proletariat, a lot more of the white proletariat is going to have to get on board with black liberation if we ever want to have a revolution. Um, but that's not where Obama is going with this, believe it or not. Because um, his next sentence is, a quote, the conviction that racism wasn't inevitable may also explain my willingness to defend the American idea, what the country was and what it could become. So basically what he's saying here is we can go from white supremacist capitalism to woke capitalism 
uh, and everything will be fine. And you can make the racism go away by uh, just kind of talking, saying the right words to these dumb white people and appealing to the better angels of their nature. Yes. He says, I knew that um, I knew that in order to accomplish that, I needed to use language that spoke to all Americans and propose policies that touched everyone. And it's like, dude, I like I and, you know, I understand like this, this desire, of course, like as Marxist myself, right, to unite the white and black working class. But it's like when you're reading this, you're understanding that like because of and I think we were talking about this, Andre earlier, because it seems that he gets a lot of his like um, his instincts from his grandmother. Right. Mm -hmm. And he describes his grandmother as someone who's a bit more kind of patient and who is someone who who kind of how can I say, like, kind of takes things slowly. Right. And even though she's had like, you know, a long and difficult life, she's sort of like he admires like her patience. Right. And um, her 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 sort of steadiness. But then it's like that just seems like that that manifests itself in him giving preference again like you were saying Jamie to racist ass white people or white people that just don't fucking like him or the republican party right instead of like actually choosing a side and understanding like what race and racism is he just thinks that he can just talk people out of it right and if he just says the right things to everyone he can unify the country and he did the exact fucking opposite right he did the exact opposite kind of did that on a very shallow level right because he got white people to vote for him and he sort of united uh this multiracial working class coalition behind a broad populist program which is what bernie was trying to do but he did it on the most superficial level possible and you know for very bad disingenuous ends and outcomes God, man. It's just- there's actually something there's actually, uh there's actually something else in that section uh and and it's, it's funny how you keep on bringing up like the same sections that i highlighted so it tells me that we're kind of on the same page <laughs> but in, in that same section um he talks about like you know uh his debates that he had had with people as a young person about america right so he says as a young man it chafed against books that dismissed the notion of american exceptionalism all right so we're already off to a bad start got into long drawn out arguments with friends who insisted the american hegemon was the root of oppression worldwide I had lived overseas. I knew too much. And this this is exactly <laughs> what, remember, okay, before we started, I said, does he not seem like somebody who's, you know, lived for a little while overseas and then talks to people like they've never read a book in their entire lives or like they have no experiences of their own? He, so he says, I knew too much. That America fell perpetually short of its ideals, I readily conceded. The version of American history taught in schools with slavery glossed over and the slaughter of Native Americans all but omitted, that I did not defend. The blundering exercise of military power, the rapaciousness of multinationals, yeah, yeah, I got all that. It's like, bro, what the fuck? Yeah, yeah, I get all that? Then he turns around and says, (laughs) what the idea of America, the promise of America, this I clung to with a stubbornness that surprised even me. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so... When he says, like, he, he brings up, like, the Wright brothers, he brings up Gettysburg, he brings up uh, Johnny Cash performing at Folsom State Prison. And so it's like, so uh, music artists performing in a prison, Thomas Edison, like, either inventing or stealing shit, a couple of guys making airplanes, and the president of the United States having to maintain the union by going to war against slave states that wanted to secede 
and not going to war with them because they were slave states, but because they wanted to secede, you're going to stack those ex- anecdotes up against, I don't know, like the... <laughs> You're gonna stack stack that up against like the the occupation of the Philippines up until the 1940s. You're gonna stack that up against like the United Fruit Company. You're gonna stack that up against like the uh, the uh, the the occupation of Afghanistan. That's that's really what your argument is: is that this idea that has never actually been realized, like the the rapaciousness against Haiti, you know, the annexation of of Hawaii and Puerto Rico, all of that means nothing to you that's a yeah yeah i got that but this thing that americans tell themselves about who they are as a people and what america means as a country this delusion like this grand delusion everybody else wants to put themselves through you're saying that is the real america and everything that america actually did yeah yeah i got all that and i was like man fuck you and this is where like i completely agree with Aaron when you say that he's the guy's a fucking sociopath yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting when you put on all of that historical context, he really does just sweep over it. Anytime he mentions something historical, right? Like when he's talking about like um in the Middle East, right? Because he goes and he travels to the Middle East while he's on the campaign trail, right? To show off some kind of show of force, right? As like a young, inexperienced, like presidential candidate, right? He wants to prove that like he has the chops to like, you know, um be on the world stage, right? And he, he kind of like, like half acidly like mentions his trip to Afghanistan where he says, he says something about the Soviet invasion that began in 1979 um, or when the Taliban took over in the mid nineties, but he never actually contextualizes like why the Taliban took over in the nineties, right? There's Soviet aggression. And then suddenly the Taliban just takes over, right? It's not about the United States and its own, like um, its own uh, influence in that region of the world. Right. Everything is just completely washed over. And I'm assuming because he understands that his readership has the same ideal of America that he does, that they too will read it over and just excuse it, right? Well, he does make a nod. Aaron and I split up the chapters, folks, by the way, so we both didn't have to read the whole thing. He does make a nod in one of the chapters to the fact that um, they armed the force that ended up evolving into, was it Al-Qaeda, the Taliban? one of the two in mm. Afghanistan, but he's like, but we had to do that because of the Soviet occupation. And he hates the USSR. Like the, the part where he talks about the USSR is like, like, man, I thought this guy was smart. Like the mask slips a little bit. Cause it just reads like straight up propaganda. Like he doesn't do, he doesn't even bother with the to be sure paragraph so much in this part. Doesn't he call it Marxist? I didn't. I, that wasn't my section, but doesn't he just call it Marxist totalitarianism? Yeah, yeah. And like, oh my god, no! Like, I underlined the whole thing. I put it up on Twitter. I'm like, oh, that, and that's it. I'm a fucking tanky now. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Because, oh, it's just so. Bad. Oh, you like, just, I don't even want to read it. There? I'm gonna get mad again. Yeah. No. 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 Like that. My my tanky arc actually got completed uh, this past <laughs> week. Like I was. <laughs> I, I don't know if uh, I don't know if you saw that uh, Bill Gates is now like the largest owner of farmland in America. No, I did yeah, not know that. Uh, it was Business Insider, I think, that posted this article, basically saying that like the largest owner, like single owner of farmland in America, is Bill Gates. I was like, fuck it, I'm just a, I'm a Maoist now. All right, the Maoism intensifies. I'm a fucking tanky. Uh, let's go. <laughs> but yeah, in that section, in that section, he was talking about. Um, uh, you know the the, uh, the Russian em- uh, the Russian Empire, and you know how it is that uh, you know Russia went from this uh, t- 
totalitarian state to uh, this state under Putin. And he has this Jordan Peterson understanding of Marxism. And I'm not sure if you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I don't know if you ever saw yeah. the, the debate between Peterson and Zizek, which I was actually yeah. at, by the way. I was, oh, at that, uh, oh, yeah, I was at that debate. I was bombed out of my fucking mind. And I was watching it with a few of my best friends, including uh, <laughs> David Slavik and, and, and uh, Heidi Matthews. Um, but uh, once we were watching that, it just dawned on me. I'm like, Jordan Peterson doesn't know fuck all about Marxism. This is wild. How does, how does he get to have this much uh, like airtime and this much space to talk about Marxism and talk about a concept he knows nothing about? And the same thing with Obama here. Although I think he does actually know a little something about Marxism. But again, because he assumes that his readers have never read anything, he can just say things and make them true. So, for example, he says, um, when in the mid-1980s, Mikhail Gorbachev took over as the general secretary of the Communist Party and ushered in the cautious liberalization known as Perestroika and Glasnost, I studied what happened closely, wondering if it signaled the dawning of a new age. And when, just a few years later, the Berlin Wall fell... Now, there is no... There's no, like, link at all here. He just jumps exactly. from Paris yeah. and Glasnost to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And there's there's no connective tissue between the two whatsoever, right? Well, the reader's um, supposed to fill in that gap, right? Based ex- on, like, exactly. American myth-making. Yeah. Uh, democratic activists inside Russia lifted Boris Yeltsin to power. Democratic <laughs> activists did not lift Boris Yeltsin to power. That was 100% the United States. Sweeping aside... Sweeping aside the old communist order and dissolving the Soviet Union, I considered it not just a victory for the West, but a testimony to the power of a mobilized citizenry and a warning for despots everywhere. Except in 1990, in 1990 fucking three, Boris Yeltsin rolls up a bunch of tanks to parliament because the communists didn't like him and were going to defeat his government. What the fuck is this shit? Like, again, you think I'm stupid? <laughs> no, he definitely, definitely does. And you're right. Like, he does understand it. He is smart. But he's talking to the reader like they're dumb because, you know, he thinks Americans are dumb. Um, I really want to talk about the beer summit. I feel like we have to. Oh, no. It, I didn't, I didn't get to that part. So I'm going to have to have y'all come in. Because, like, I'm trying to look for um, – he really doesn't write about Black Lives Matter at all in this book. Which is sort of striking because I mean maybe it'll be in no, the I second volume. I'm saving it for the next volume. Yeah. All right. Well, because this is you know this is a, a movement that bloomed during his presidency and was in many ways a condemnation of uh, a lot of the things that he claimed to be doing for black people in this country, right? Um, and, and as an as an abolitionist, I paid special attention whenever he talks about the cops in this book. Um, so. 397, he talks about the fucking beer summit that he had to have after um, what he refers to as a white working class cop who was just doing his job. Um, Fact check, cops are not workers. uh, Arrests a a black Harvard professor for trying to break into his own home. And and to be fair, to be fair, he's saying uh, he's saying that this is how people perceived it. Right. Um, uh, uh, conservative media outlets barely hit their glee, portraying my comments as a case of because because okay because he said the most mild possible uh, thing he could have said about this, which is uh, he said the cops acted stupidly. Right, he didn't say they acted racistly. He, he didn't say anything bad. He just said he, he just his like normal Obama condescension. And that was his friend. That was yeah, his friend. That, was that's friends the most he could muster up. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Of course. And then 
it, it, it became a thing in the press. Um, and his, his, uh, his aide tells him, the way it's being consumed, people think you called the police stupid. And he said, I didn't say they were stupid. I said they acted stupidly. There's a difference. Blah, blah, blah. It doesn't blow over. So he has to do the fucking beer summit, which to his credit, like he acknowledges that he knows that it was bullshit. Um, he, he acknowledged that he, I could have calibrated my original comments more carefully. Um, and then he had the cop and the professor to the White House with him and Joe Biden. Um, Joe Biden, his diversity hire to get you know, racists to vote for him. He says, for an hour or so, the four of us talked about our upbringings, our work, and ways to improve trust and communication between police officers and the African-American community. When our time was up, both Crowley and Gates expressed appreciation for the tours my staff had given their families, though I joked that next time they could probably find easier ways to score an invitation. Ha ha ha. Um, then he says this. I, I underlined all of this paragraph because it's kind of insane to me uh, that he's just it, it's a weird it's a weird paragraph. I want to get you guys take on it. He says okay. it was. It was my first indicator of how the issue of black folks and the police was more polarizing than just about any other subject in American life. It seemed to tap into some of the deepest undercurrents of our nation's psyche, touching on the rawest of nerves, perhaps because it reminded all of us, black and white alike, that the basis of our nation's social order had never been simply about consent that it was also about centuries of state-sponsored violence by whites against black and brown people, and that who controlled legally sanctioned violence, how it was wielded and against whom, still mattered in the recesses of our tribal minds more than we cared to admit. Right? It's just a problem in our tribal minds. It's not mm-hmm. like he, he's coming right up to a materialist analysis of like the purpose that the police serve in our society and why it's not just polarizing, right? Yeah. Like, it's not just a difference he's, of opinion. It's kind of, kind of both sizing it, but then he's like, but that's in the past. And any lingering issues around this are purely the product of people's psyches, right? He's being an idealist and not a materialist. There's a part that I want to flag, which uh, came a few pages before that. And, and uh, that's where um, he was talking about the, uh, you know, what conflict led to the beer summit in the first place. Like he was describing the order of events and he was, he was talking about um, Henry Louis Gates and introducing Henry Louis Gates to the reader. And because they're friends, obviously he's going to be like nice about Gates. I really do not like Henry Louis Gates. I think he's like the worst thing that ever happened to Afrocentric history to, to like African history in like in the field. Like he is the worst. He's one of the people. Yeah. Who no, he's, 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 a, he's an awful human being. Um, what he does is that he uh, deliberately goes against Afrocentric consensus to try and create these new narratives. And I don't know if it's because he's somebody who works at Harvard or if it's just because that's what he really feels. And he, he is that much of a sellout. But what he'll do, for example, is like uh, feed into these narratives about Africans selling Africans into slavery, for example. So when he was trying to make a case for reparations, he he, uh, he wrote an article in the New York Times and then put a little side note in there saying, well, you know, yes, Africans sold Africans into slavery, which is absolute bullshit. It makes about as much sense as saying, you know, Europeans were at your war with Europeans, you know, uh, fr- you know, from from, you know, like the the, the middle of the uh, 15th through the 19th century. And what was really happening was that there was nations and states at war with each other. So there were nations at war with each other on the African continent, especially inside of Central and West Africa. 
but he doesn't distinguish, for example, between the different groups that were at war, or at war with one another. He just sold, says Africans sold Africans into slavery, which gives people the idea that Africa has no history, that Africans are a monolith mm-hmm. and not uh, distinct people living within nations. So he's not going to talk about, you know, like the, the, the Fon, the UA, the Ashanti, the Akan, et cetera. You know, the, the various uh, nations uh, that you can find along the Senegambian River. I'm not going to talk about the, uh, the Kingdom of Benin, not going to talk about the Malians, none of that. What he says is Africans selling Africans into slavery. It tells people that we have no past. We have no future, but that is we're, bar- we're barbaric. Yeah, pretty much. That you know, they sold out other Africans for a quick buck to the Europeans because they're so backwards and savage, and not because there was nations at war with one another and that they were selling their enemies into slavery, as has always been done throughout most of recorded history. Europeans only stopped selling other Europeans into slavery because the church made them stop selling Christians into slavery. But they would they would still kidnap, for example, Muslim people and enslave them. That all being besides the point, uh, he says. Um, uh, earlier that week, Gates had returned to his home in Cambridge after a trip to China and found his front door jammed shut. A neighbor, having witnessed Gates trying to force the door open, called the police to report a possible break-in. When the responding officer, Sergeant James Crowley, arrived, he asked Gates for identification. Gates refused at first and, according to Crowley, called him racist. Eventually, Gates produced his identification, but allegedly continued to berate the departing officer from his porch. When a warning failed to quiet Gates down, Crowley and two other officers that he'd called for backup handcuffed him, took him to the police station, and booked him for disorderly conduct. The charges were quickly dropped. So if you, standing on the front porch of your own house, who was trying to uh, explain to an officer, this is my house, I live here, here is my driver's license, whatever it else that you, whatever it else it is that you need, yada, yada, yada. Well, here it is. I shouldn't have to produce any of this. And by the way, fuck you. Fuck your racist ass, which he is entirely <laughs> within his rights to do because he's standing on his own property responding to a cop that had no reason to be there in the first place. Brock is putting this as if like he's done something wrong, right? He says, um, my own guess as to what had happened was more particular, more human than the simple black and white morality tale being portrayed. Having lived in Cambridge, oh I knew that his police department didn't have a reputation for harboring a whole bunch of bull Connor types. It doesn't matter whether a fuck or not, like whether <laughs> they, they have racist cops that you know about if they don't have a reputation for having racist cops, it doesn't mean that they don't have racist cops. Dipshit. Meanwhile, well, skip. So well, the, the meanwhile, nice to me. Yeah, exactly. But the meanwhile, yeah, yeah, pretty good. Negro, this is your friend. This is your friend that you're about to throw under the bus again. Meanwhile, as Skip Gates, Skip, as Gates was known to his friends, was brilliant and loud. One part W.E.B. Du Bois, one part Mars Blackman, which oh my I, fucking God, what bro. is it supposed to mean? And cocky enough that I could easily picture him cussing out a cop to the point where even a relatively restrained officer might feel his testosterone kick in. Why does this sound like a white guy describing a black guy? It sounds exactly <laughs> like it. It sounds it sounds like his white mother kicked in at that exact moment. Like I feel like there's like two Baracks trying to write this book. And and for the majority of it, it's his white mother uh his white mother's Barack. That is writing any kind of story whatsoever that has anything to do with black people. Because he can't ever bring up black people without chiding them for doing something that's like not respectable in his eyes. Even though the following three paragraphs were talking about the dangers of respectability politics. Like what the... Anyway, that part pissed me off so much that that's where I just like... I was like, there's just nothing redeemable about this dude because he's he's so dirty. Like even his friends, even the people that he holds close to him and even the people that he says he respects, he'll still like like kind of throw them under the bus to make the reader and again i keep asking like who is this book for but i i I feel like it's definitely for like white center right types 
as a a bomb or like a healing narrative. Like it's there for like the Biden administration to use as a way to soothe relationships between themselves and what they call the moderate right. It's not for like progressives, as they call themselves. It's not for like the left leaning types. It's entirely for trying to repair the damaged relationships uh, between himself and the center right. And that's like, it's more important for him to do that than to stand up for his friend. And that's, that's, even though I don't like Henry Louis Gates, that really bothers me about about Barack Obama. He does the same thing. I know I mentioned it earlier, um, but he does the same thing with Jeremiah Wright, where Wright says something Bro. like, um, "Yeah, that there he he says that Wright. Let's see. Um, he says he there were times when he found Wright's sermons a little over the top, over the top. Yeah, um, and apparently one of the, there's one of those sermons, right? That was uh, that apparently." was revealed in the Rolling Stones um, right before Wright is set to appear at Obama's candidacy announcement, like doing a little, like, I guess, a, a prayer. And he says, um, Wright said, we believe in white supremacy and black inferiority and believe it more than we believe in God, to which Obama replies, seriously? Yeah. You know, and it's just like, <laughs> it's just like, dude, like, and, and then he oh, even but, but, tries but, but, to, like, but, but, again, bro, he does this thing. You gotta, you gotta, put, like, you gotta put this uh, in there. You gotta put this in there. Okay. <laughs> so when he talks about Wright's sermons, he also mentions who's in the congregation. It's like, it, it, okay, I at least thought, I at least thought that on the matter of his church, <laughs> he would leave that off limits. Like he wouldn't throw his whole fucking church under the bus. And then he does it. He does it. This dude says, the first this dude says, uh, like uh, Reverend Wright, please don't don't be saying these things in front of these good white people because they good white people. He says about <laughs> the sermons because okay, let me let me give it the full context. He says, um, in the middle of a scholarly ex- explication of the book of Matthew or Luke, he might insert a scathing critique of America's drug war, American militarism, capitalist greed, or the intractability of American racism. Rants that were usually grounded in fact, but bereft of context. What kind of fucking context do you <laughs> no. think you can add to all of that? Often they sounded dated as if you were channeling a college teaching from 1968 rather than leading a prosperous congregation that included, and this is the part that threw me, police commanders, celebrities, wealthy business people, and the Chicago school superintendent. And every so often, what he said was just wrong, edging close to the conspiracy theories one heard on late night public access stations or the barbershop down the street. And okay, this this part, I actually had to put down the book, get up, walk away and calm down before I came back to it. I I, I literally went and put a leash on my dog and I tucked my dog around the block before I came back to this one. Okay, it was as if this erudite, middle aged, light skinned black man was straining for street cred street cred, trying to quote unquote, like scare quotes, full scare quotes, keep it real. Or maybe he just recognized both within his congregation and within himself, the periodic need to let loose, to release pent up anger from a lifetime of struggle in the face of chronic racism, reason and logic be damned. Now, when you think, hold up, when you think, when you think, when you think of a political figure, think of a political figure, erudite, middle-aged, Light-skinned black man straining for street cred, trying to keep it real. Who do you think of immediately? He's 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 projecting all of his insecurities on Reverend Wright. Every last one of them. (laughs) Yes, because he wished he could be Reverend Wright. He wished he could be as like, I mean, I don't know if he really wishes he could because I don't think he believes in these things. But like Wright is talking about like white supremacy and like, you know, imperialism. And you literally just like phrase it as flippantly, like the periodic need to let loose. 
Like, what the fuck? What does like, that mean? This is what yeah. I'm talking about. This yes. Like, telling, yes. Telling what does that the mean? Telling the, exactly. He's calling him the angry black guy. You know, you know what I mean? Like, there's no reason for him to feel this way. It's just a bunch of pent up rage. And was like, all right. Uh, thanks a lot, Wolfgang and Farrakuti. Let's 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 talk about subcultural violence theory and how you apply subcultural violence theory to, to Jeremiah Wright. Why, why don't we just do that? Why don't, why don't we just why don't we just do some like, you know, uh, unpacking some Anthony Lamel Jr. unpacking on your fucking self? Because every everything everything that he does, like this projection that he does on the black community, I think it's like it's a it's a photo negative aspect of himself. It's almost like if you're looking at a picture of Barack Obama, the president, and then there's like the the scary Fox News thing where they, or actually no, it's more like a like a current affairs thing where they do a photo negative, and it's like oh my gosh, there's an evil side to this person. And it, what he'll like the, <laughs> the dark photo negative evil side to Barack Obama is that he, I feel like he's so racially insecure in himself that he cannot help but any time he yeah. talks about a black person he has to bring up the negative aspect of them or a part that he doesn't necessarily understand himself and he's just going to chalk it up to black pathology and that just it's like it's there throughout this book and it's actually one of the reasons why like the part one here the the volume one was bad enough i kind of feel like i'm going to have to book about six or seven therapist visits like i'm gonna have to block off a solid month and a half (laughs) my therapist to get through all of the bullshit that's going to be like poisoning my brain after reading the second volume well yo you know you just made me think about like you know why i think he really like enjoyed his anger translator which was like you know what was it uh was it michael michael key yeah i think he liked that because he like that was i guess a part of himself that like he would like to believe had been true like an angry sort of black guy you know like to confirm to other people like all like his black detractors who would like you know basically call him like you know you're caping for the white man type of shit it's like oh no see i like like this fictional like version of myself that's like expressing my anger but no he doesn't really have those beliefs or wish he could have an anger translator or be as angry as that. It's just all like a performance to prove to other black people, even while he's being condescending to them, to prove to them, like, I'm still one of you. Like, he's so conflicted. He's so conflicted. Yeah. He, con- he makes me want to side with the Afro-pessimist, honestly, if those are the two choices. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness like what uh, world are you living in i uh I, oh. i'm not gonna i'm not gonna i'm not gonna expand any further because if i start talking about the afro pessimists on your show that this is what's gonna the show is gonna end up being about so i'm gonna shut up oh everyone's gonna hate it and never gonna want to listen to it <laughs> you're gonna have people in your dms <laughs> all right well maybe that's the right, topic for another day um but uh <laughs> I was going to say, oh, yeah, so you're talking, you talked about who this book is for, Andre, and I think uh, that is a really important question to consider because he addresses the book. He says that it's for young people who are skeptical of America and of capitalism, right? He He pretends like he's addressing it to them, but, like, I feel like he kind of knows that ship has sailed and his powers don't work on us anymore. Uh, I mean, speaking only for myself, like I got tricked. I was, uh, I was young. I was foolish. I was, you know, a young white liberal at the time that Obama was running for president. I'm like, Oh yeah, this guy seems great. He was against the Iraq war and Hillary seems like a bitch. So like, I'm going to make some phone calls for him. And then, you know, 
I got radicalized around the time of Occupy. And by 2012, I was voting for Jill Stein, which is, you know, not something I'm necessarily proud of. But the point is, I wasn't voting for him anymore. Right. Um, But like he who is the book actually for? I don't know. Like, I think you I think you're right. Like he's he's making a show of sort of castigating the left, disciplining the left. Um, disciplining young people, black radicals, um, everybody really, and saying like, look, look, guys, this is my legacy. I can still get these people in, I can get these people in line, just like I did before. Like, I, I can tamp down on this shit so it doesn't pose a threat to the to the ruling order. And it's especially dark and cynical, right? Because he can do whatever he wants now. Like, mm. he's not running for anything He's on an island with Richard Branson, like yeah, jet skiing and shit. And yeah, windsurfing Netflix shows or whatever. Yeah. Like he can say whatever he wants, and this is still what he's choosing to do, and this is still who he's choosing to carry water for. And it just seems very, uh, very dark and diseased. He he's a true believer. Yeah, no, he's, he's and like you know, yeah. he's a true believer. Go ahead, Jerry. No, I was going to say uh, that, to, um, you know, yeah, he, yeah. He, he had the, he had what could have been the responsibility of an elder statesman, you know, or, you know, a retired elder statesman. And, um, you know, throughout the Donald Trump presidency, he would just like have like little quips and anecdotes here and there. But for the most part, what he was doing, especially throughout the primaries, was chiding the left, which which has mm-hmm. always been his like predisposition. And in the book, you can really get how he believes that it's his responsibility to check his own impulses and go with what either consensus or the job demands rather than what his own beliefs are. But then you, he probably released this book at the very wrong time because you never actually see him act on what he says are his initial impulses. And especially as somebody who's no longer president and should just be able to say whatever he wants. That's not what he does. If you want to think about somebody who just says whatever the fuck he wants, think of Colin Powell. Remember how like Colin Powell, Mm -hmm. Um, he, he had some interviews a while back. This is, I think around like 2000, maybe like, uh, 14, 15. And, uh, you know, he was being asked about like Hillary Clinton and, you know, he, he, uh, got exposed for, I, I don't know if it was like an interview or some recordings or whatever, but he reminded me of just like this old crufty Jamaican man, like reaching down and scratching his foot back <laughs> and then like telling you all the gossip, you know what I mean? Like knocking back like a little bit of yeah. Jay Ray and nephew and, you know, ready he puts down the dominoes and said, Hmm. Well, let me tell you about so-and-so. You know what I mean? Cole Powell has just been saying whatever the fuck he wants ever ever since his retirement to the point where people are like disowning him practically. (laughs) Uh, But, but, but Barack, like, even though there's just, there's nothing for him to gain or lose at this point. Right. Like he's just become like a lifestyle influencer, but everything that he does say when it comes to the realm of politics is saying either the same as what he was saying during his presidency or even farther to the right of where he was initially. So that tells me, regardless of whether he thinks he, be- he believes these things or not, he doesn't actually really believe them. It's almost like uh, Kwame Ture says, like a lot of people believe that they're thinking but all they're doing is thinking about thinking. They're not actually thinking. You know, he's talking about like the need to participate in revolutionary struggle, the need to like know about the struggle, the need to read theory, but also to participate in action. Like if you're not, you know, participating in the struggle for your people, then you're not actually thinking. You just think you're thinking. You're you're reacting to stimuli, and that's what I would say. The same for uh, for Barack Obama is that he thinks 
that he's actually participating in some kind of political project, but he's just sitting around and wanking himself off. And the times that he actually does get up and take any action, it's in the exact opposite of what needs to be done in that moment, especially for left politics. Exactly. Or or against, like, again, an implication of, like, better instincts, right? Like, his better angels. And, like, you know, there, there's early on in the beginning, um, there's, like, one last thing I found was really interesting. I mean, he just does this throughout the book. Um, somebody tells him, I forget who it is, it's, like, a, a senior senator or, like, a colleague or something like that. Um, and actually, no, this is even before he gets in the Senate. This is, like, when he's running, like, um, for, I guess, like, a, is it Assemblyman in Chicago or some shit like that? And he says... Um, that someone tells him that the key to surviving this place, which is like politics, right, is understanding that it's a business. And Obama, like there are statements that are made to him like this throughout the book by people that are like more seasoned than he is um, because he's young and inexperienced and idealistic is, is what he calls himself. And it seems that just by his kind of framing, right, and his intonation that he like reflexively rejects these statements. But I think like he actually like has absorbed them and believes them to be true. And again, it's all this sort of like performative front where he is engaging with the audience to make like, again, writing maybe for like, I don't know, like the same people that like help him win, like, you know, independents, like, you know, maybe some Republicans. Like, I really don't know. Like to answer your question earlier, Jamie, I really don't know who this book is for. He says it's for young people, but then he spent his post presidency like maligning them. So it's like, who yeah. is it for? Which young people like, are talking I mean, about? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's an apology tour, which is like liberalism 101. The book is just an apology to it, but it's not to the people that you should be fucking apologizing to, you know? Yeah. Word. Oh my God. I, I wrote down so many places where he, um, he, he thinks he can make a magic speech. And, and again, like, like, does he think that he's doing that to us right now? Or is he more cynical about it? I don't know. Like I also read Hillary Clinton's book and this okay. one was much more interesting because he really seems kind of like a genuinely tortured and conflicted guy, whereas Hillary is just Hillary all the way down, you know? Like, they talk about it on Chapo, too, how he's worse than her, because she really seems like she believes all her own bullshit, whereas, uh, like, it's not bullshit to her. That's just the way things yeah. are. Whereas he kind of knows, he kind of knows, like, he's familiar with leftist thought, He's familiar with black radical thought and he knows in the back of his mind that they're right, but he rejects it for reasons of his own ego and his own ambition and then rationalizes it using MLK. Um, <laughs> I like the part where he thinks he can scold the birtherism out of people. Um, it kind of reminds me of um, that song by Art Fruit, We Formed a Band, where he's like, I want to be the band that writes the song makes Israel and Palestine get along, right? Like he literally thinks he can do that with his speech to the Muslim world. And he said, he says, he's like, I know it's not going to fix all the problems, but you get the idea that he kind of thinks it's a big deal, <laughs> right? Or like at 685 when he's trying to uh, just stop people from uh, doing the birtherism on him. And that's where Donald Trump makes his first appearance, I think. Uh, he's like, look, we got a lot of problems facing our country. Um, we we got to shape a better future together, but we're not going to be able to do it if we just make stuff up and pretend that facts are not facts. We're not going to be able to solve our problems if we get distracted by sideshows and carnival barkers. 
we're better than this. And just the whole time, it's like, who, like, how much power do you think you have as an individual? I, at the same time that you're doing things, the actions that you are engaging in, the system that you support and uphold is the very thing that produces this kind of far right reaction. Um, I don't know. It's complicated. Well, well, like, again, like, I think I mentioned this at the beginning is like, he, he starts out like with this, like, vision to unite the country. But what he ends up doing, like, unlike Sanders, right, who like wanted to unite like the correct segment of like the working class, right? Like he, he had a specific constituency that he was going out for, like, people who for so long, like, have not only been exploited, but had like either no faith in politics or just haven't felt their voices represented in politics. But Obama not only tries to like kind of cross these racial lines, he tries to cross these class lines where it's like, well, these are the people that have always always have had power and influence. So the minute that you let these people get the say, any like sort of instincts that you might have, right, to ignore what they what they want you to do, like you immediately give into it. Right. Because you think you're uniting the country. And then eight years later, you and he even alludes to it in a little bit when he's talking about Palin in the book, that this is what's coming, sort of. But it's like you did nothing to actually stop that because you don't you didn't no, believe he, anything. <laughs> he excuses John McCain for picking Sarah Palin. He's like, John McCain is a good man. And I think if he knew if he knew what was going to happen as a result, he might have thought twice about it. Like John McCain knew exactly what the fuck he was doing when he picked Sarah Palin. And, and like, it's, spoiler alert, not all that different from the normal Republican Party. It's just like Republicans on steroids. Um, oh, I wanted to spotlight, too, um, where he talks about, he's actually speaking at a Holocaust memorial uh, in Berlin. It's very somber. He talks about the Holocaust. He blames bigotry of course. Um, and then he says, our na- our history has always been the sum total of the choices made and the actions taken by each individual man and woman. It has always been up to us. But if that's true, then all the shit that he's been saying about how it, w- it wasn't up to him, he had no choice to do the things that he did, that- then that's not that's true. That's a lie. Like, yeah. it was up to him. If it was up to him all along, like, you can't have it both ways, man. Well, it doesn't apply to him because he's the strongest man, like, in the world, right? Like, somehow, as the strongest man in the world, none of this, like, like responsibility or anything like that applies to him. Because, like, you know, he was he was fraught with the task of, like, uniting this divided country. And, like, you know, like, just like, you know, maybe white people or even black people wouldn't have trusted, like, an inexperienced black president. Like, he continues to make all these excuses despite having been president of the United States. And that's, again, where I'm just, like, come down. I'm like, this is the most schizophrenic, like, quietly disturbing book that I've ever read. Like, it really was, like, reading a diary of, like, a serial killer. Yeah, because, like, he's familiar with all of these ideas. And he, he, ki- he knows. He knows all the shit that people have said about why America is evil. And he kind of knows that it's right. But he, he's, like, like, he likes the movie Parasite, right? Like, he can appreciate these thoughts as just... Um, just a little bit of flavor, a little bit of color for his speeches that he can like kind of pick and choose from in this weird uh, kind of postmodern pastiche where all of these different strains of thought are just like flattened out into a uniform cultural product that you can kind of put up on your wall as a poster and be like, oh, isn't that neat? 
Mm. Uh, but he's he's such he's such a creep. Um, I kind of want to end on this weird bit where he goes to Egypt. You guys, uh, well, Aaron wouldn't have read it because it's mm. in an odd chapter. Um, but like after this is this is kind of crazy. So after his speech to the Muslim world, where he's like, you know, America is good actually. Um, he goes and visits the pyramids, and he finds an ancient hieroglyphic that kind of looks like him. And then he gets really emo and philosophical, and there's just this really weird part where he's sort of um, he's sort of staring at this hieroglyphic that he thinks looks like him, and sort of he's getting really philosophical about um, the world and about history. He says, "I stood at the wall for an extra beat, trying to imagine the life behind that etching. Had he been a member of the royal court, a slave, a foreman?" Maybe just a bored vandal, camped out at night centuries after the wall had been built, inspired by the stars and his own loneliness to sketch his own likeness. I tried to imagine the worries and strivings that might have consumed him and the nature of the world he'd occupied, likely full of its own struggles and palace intrigues, conquests and catastrophes. Events that probably at the time felt no less pressing than those I'd faced as soon as I got back to Washington. Mm, All of it was forgotten now. None of it mattered. The pharaoh, the slave and the vandal all long turned to dust. Just as every speech I delivered, every lie passed and decision I made would soon be forgotten. Just as I and all those I loved would someday turn to dust. Counterpoint, you're writing a three volume book about yourself. Yo, he he literally just, uh, it's just so diseased. What the fuck <laughs> is wrong with you, man? It's like he loves to think of himself as this conflicted everyman. You know, again, like, you know, who, did, and did who, you who embarks on this hero's journey. But I just I have to I I gotta throw one thing in there because this 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 part actually like fucking uh, floored me. I was like, bro, you accidentally wrote Percy Shelley's Ozymandias. Like you, yeah, yeah. like that's what I put in there. I'm like Ozymandias moment. Yeah, maybe he's he's doing a literary illusion. Maybe he uh, he thinks some of us are smart enough to pick that up. I don't know. Oh wait, hang on. No, sorry, that wouldn't be Percy Shelley. That would actually be Horace Smith's version. Um. Uh, where uh okay i'm gonna go look it up so i can actually read the fucking things but i remember there was a uh, one part where he says um the only shadow that the the desert knows um the uh god i'm gonna have to go back and like read it and, and and pick it up again but yeah like when when he when he was re- or when he wrote that section i'm like i'm getting this image of just like you know uh like sand being blown by the desert wind off of this tablet uh you know that that uh reveals the uh the inscribed writings like the chiseled writings of of alexander the great and i'm like is that who you see yourself as like your you know your accomplishments are going to be turned into dust but this book shall remain like this 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 testament to humanity shall remain who the fuck do you think you are he thinks he's a lot of people but the, I mean, it's perfect, it's perfect metaphor, yeah. right? Because the tombs of the pharaohs, you know, they thought that they could have eternal life. And he's like, oh, but that's silly. I couldn't possibly unless dot, yeah, dot, yeah. dot. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, I did look. Okay, I'm looking it up, and it is actually Percy Shelley's version. Um, I'm not going to read the entire thing, but it says, on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 
I know. That is so diseased. Yeah. So, uh, just... <sighs> Jesus, man. Can't, can't wait. Can't wait until Michelle runs. <laughs> no, or no. what if it's like, because uh, we're we're in full postmodernism, right? Maybe it's not a reference to the poem. Maybe it's a reference to a reference. Maybe he thinks he's like Walter White in Breaking Bad. Oh, <laughs> that might be a yeah, oh, no, nothing means anything. <laughs> well, like he's just a guy that, like you know, like unfortunately, just had to do some bad things because of the situation, the circumstances he found himself in. Instead of like, you know, res- like resolving on some kind of integrity or like, you know what I mean, like believing anything at all. It's just like, well, I couldn't do this because reasons. And 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 we're supposed to despair over that, you know. Jesus yeah. fucking Christ. If, anyway, if this, uh, this run, he will have successfully transferred his uh corruption and deformity to someone who used to be human. And that's gonna be the darkest chapter of all. Here's the thing. I I I don't believe him when he says that Michelle didn't want him to run and all that. I don't. I think it, it makes for a very like relatable story. But I, I think she mm. was down with it. Like, if she wasn't, um, you know, publicly talking about supporting him at those times, like for the Senate run, et cetera. Uh, I think that I don't know if I would ever see Michelle running for president. Like, I'm just kind of joking about that. I think mm. I think there's like I think power enjoys power without accountability. And like Michelle Obama has never really had to be accountable to anyone, but she is like feted and celebrated by a lot of people who seem to mm-hmm. believe that she's like, she's Barack's conscience. But I'm like, but if she's true, if she's with him through all of that and answers no questions about U.S. foreign policy, answers no questions about uh, the U.S. like brutality against black lives, answers no questions about like the class warfare that's taking place, nothing about healthcare, none of that. But people listen to her political opinions because she's just widely beloved. I think that's the best possible position you can be in because you're just basically the power behind the scenes. It's almost like you're like you're a member of the Canadian Senate. You know, the Canadian Senate is completely unaccountable to the public. Like they're handpicked by uh, the the prime minister and they don't answer to anybody. They're not elected. So they can just basically say and do whatever they want. They're accountable only to themselves. And I kind of feel like there's a power behind the power when it comes to the U.S. presidency. And, you know, one of those is corporations and two are ex-presidents and three are uh, first spouses. You know what I mean? What if he's setting it up so that when she runs, everyone thinks she's a good person? Yeah. 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 And that she was like the moral anchor. Not that people don't already, but... (laughs) But, like, if she was his moral anchor, then she sucks at that job because look at all the shit that he did. Well, the thing is, nobody cares about that. That's the problem. Like, as people who are on the, well, I guess we can call ourselves like communists. Like, we're all sort of on the same page where it comes to uh, left politics. But, you know, nobody really cares about that. When you talk to anybody about like drone strikes in Pakistan and Sudan, it's, you know, he did what he had to. You know, the, he is the first black president, blah, blah, blah. When it comes to healthcare, he did what he had to. First black president. When it comes to uh, banking and financial rules, same shit. They don't actually care. So I kind of feel like people do see her as the moral anchor because they see him as a moral president who just had to make some very tough decisions. I don't know. It's exactly. unfortunate, but the, the the vast majority of people in America do not think like we do. And that means there's like a long term political project there. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, it's, so- it, 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 it's, it's just like this book is just like really like just like 
uh, just liberalism 101. Like every 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 page that I've read, it was just like it just reeks of like why I hate liberalism, right? Why I hate the apology tour, the excuses for why you couldn't do this, the the complete like abandonment of power, right? Or the 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 desire to like build like winning and lasting coalitions, right? It's all just symbolic. Like again, when he's talking about when Michelle asked him, and it's a pointed question, you know, like why do you run and run? Why does it have to be you? And he has nothing materially to offer at all because he doesn't believe in anything. And that's the most depressing thing. Like, I, I, you know, I would much rather read, like, you know, a pulp fiction, like, you know, like science fiction novel from, like, the 50s that's fantastical and just, like, complete bullshit than read this fucking book, yo. Like, this is the greatest work of fantasy that I've, like, ever read, I think, man. It's, it's, it's so dark. It's like, so bleak. I, I remember you just reminded me there's a part where he talks about the financial crisis as if it's a natural disaster. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like nothing you could do. It's an act of God. This is just this is just the way of this is the way things are. There's yeah. no alternative. There's no no way to resolve these contradictions. Um at, but that's only true if you can't look outside of capitalism. Right. It, yeah. It's just naturalizing an unjust like there are multiple levels. Right. Because there's actually stuff he could have done within capitalism, as we know, as we've right. gone over. Um, but, you know, yeah, if you want to stop having financial crises, we have to exit out of capitalism. There's just no way around that. But he uh, he doesn't want to. So I'm sorry that I made you guys read this book with me. Um, no, you're not. No, you're not. Don't lie to my. Don't lie to my face. I, I, <laughs> enjoy the cruelty of I like, like I, I owe you a, a lot of favors now. You got to come on the pod. That's it. Yeah, Both of y'all got to come on the pod. That's it. <laughs> that's, it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's how we. That's how his podcasters do it. Just come on the pod. That's it. <laughs> that's that's uh, fine. One hand washes the other. Um, but thank you so much for doing it, and you know sitting in the darkness with me um any any final thoughts um you guys uh you guys excited for some hope and change in uh 2021 yo fuck obama there's nothing that i can <laughs> say in response to that that's going to be fit for you to put on your podcast so i'm just going to skip <laughs> <laughs>